I met my husband um, in the seventh grade. We both lived in the same town and attended the same youth group. I can remember being at a junior high function and playing a game, and he did something that I interpreted as kind, and this really strange thought came into my head, he would make a great father. Uh, I'm not sure why I ever thought of such a thing in the seventh grade, but I would go on to have a crush on him. He would go on to like an older, cuter girl. So we ended up becoming really good friends. And then in high school, they broke up, and he and I started dating. We were married. Uh, we were high school sweethearts, stayed involved in that youth group together. Then we got married and were continued to be involved in that same church. As I look back, when it came to spiritual matters, I was the one that was doing all the talking, and he was more quiet. He would always agree and be supportive. I thought he was a believer when we got married, or we wouldn't have married, but he claims that he did not become saved until he was attending, he, we attended a Ravi Zacharias conference, and that was several years after we were married. He never mentioned any of that until many, many years later. About the time we started having children, he became very busy with his career. He was working long hours and wasn't home much. So we seemed to settle into a good system. He worked long hours, so I didn't have to, and I concentrated on the home. And because I was a full-time homemaker, I had the luxury of teaching some Bible studies and working on our children's program at church. And to put that another way, I was in God's Word and involved in the church, and he was not. It was as if he was immersing himself in his career, and I was trying to study and serve for the two of us. He faithfully came to church twice on Sundays and paid to send the kids to Christian school, but his own relationship with Jesus was pretty non-existent. I would rationalize it was because of his job and it was so demanding and that I had more time. I prayed a lot that he would go to church and hear a sermon and be convicted and get excited about God, but that never seemed to happen. He usually seemed unfazed by the sermons he heard. He wasn't opposed to God by any means. He just wasn't that interested in God, and that baffled me. If you would have asked me at the time to describe him, I would have said he was a great guy. He was a great father. He was a great provider. He was a great Republican. But as I was trying to grow in my faith, and as the kids became believers and were trying to grow in their faith, I began to realize that there is a difference between being pro-Christian and actually being one. I was teaching Bible classes and telling women that if God was a priority in their life, then God's word needed to be a priority in their lives. And so it was very concerning when my husband had no relationship with the word of God. When I wanted to pray together, he seemed agitated. And so I never asked unless something was really life-threatening. Long story short... 
over time, I begin to wonder, what am I really dealing with here? Is he a true believer or not? Then we were hit with a hard year. And I thought, okay, good. Maybe this stuff is going to get his attention and he's going to be refocused and he's going to get excited about Jesus. But he didn't. Instead, he actually seemed to become more independent and proud-hearted. And then one day, out of the blue, God allowed him to be flattened. And he confessed to me for the first time in our lives that he wasn't sure if he was saved. And I answered something like this, you need to figure this out because you can't live off my faith and you can't live off your children's. And so he claims at one point he kneeled next to his bed and cried out to God to save him. And that is when my life changed. Almost overnight, my husband seemed sweeter and more joyful and thoughtful. I realized there had been an unaddressed tension in the home, and now it was gone. <laughs> now he was interested in reading his Bible. Now he was asking me for my opinion before he did things. And I would stop and stare. I did that a lot. One night, night he announced he would like for us to pray together. On the second night of praying, I said, I usually try to pray with an open Bible. And I, by the third night, he was praying with an open Bible. We were going through the first chapter of First Timothy, and he broke down and began to weep. He said the passage was describing him. Now the word of God was speaking to his heart. Now when he went to church, he would think the Sunday school teacher was speaking directly to him and describing him. Now he was faced. Now he was experiencing conviction. Now he was actually feeding on the word of God and using it to guide his life. Before, when I would get upset or stressed out I, and I would mention it, it seemed to just really make him angry. And he would tell me to chill. Or he would ask me, can you do anything about it? And I would say no. And he would say, then quit worrying about it. And I would think to myself, you know, just once, I would like you to respond to me with some compassion and comfort me. Well, it wasn't long after his change, I got some or concerning news from the doctor and he could see I was concerned and so he took my hand and he said I'm going to pray for you right now and he walked me to the kitchen table and sat down and prayed over me sometime later I was stressing about something worried I wasn't going to get to do something and he took me by both shoulders and he looked me in the eye and said we are going to take care of you and my jaw dropped I would wake up in the morning 
I want to pinch myself to make sure this was really happening. When I think about this situation, it reminds me of a passage in the Gospels where Jesus tells a story about people that come to him. And they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. I think at one time that would have described my husband. He could have said, Lord, Lord, did I not say grace before every meal? Did I not tithe faithfully? Did I not have clean speech and never cuss? And Jesus would have said, I don't know you. Depart from me. But that was before last June of last year. Now I do not question my husband's salvation. We are not exactly sure what to call this. Some might say he was a prodigal returning or that he was rededicating his life to Christ and maybe it was, we don't know. I don't pretend to know a man's heart. All I can go by is the radical change that I have observed. I share this with you this morning because our lesson today is God's design for living with a disobedient husband, an unbelieving husband. And in hindsight, I'm pretty sure that I just spent the last 37 years of my life doing that. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, we have studied this on a numerous occasions. Today we're going to work through it a little differently. I'm going to start with First Peter chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, I'd like to share some things this morning that God has been showing me over the past six years of Abide. And we're going to, as in particular, as they apply to today's topic, and we're going to be using this passage to do it. Now, our focus today is going to be dealing with the unbelieving spouse, even though we're going to be discussing many things that apply to all of us. Okay, first of all, verse 5, I want you to see the words, holy women of God. Several years ago, we did a, a study 
on holiness. And if you were here, this is going to be a review. But I want to start with some definitions that we discovered in that course. Then I'm going to explain to you how they apply to today's topic. So um, hang with me. I have on your papers the most basic meaning of the word holy. And it means, the word holy, number one in your papers, the word holy comes from a root that means to cut, to separate. It means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different. Right, that was the primary meaning that we talked about. And then we also learned a secondary meaning, and I have that on your papers too. Number two, holiness describes the purity and moral perfection of God's nature. Now, when we studied this, we distinguished our personal holiness, and we put that into two categories. We said, number three on your paper, positional holiness is what God imparts to us when we become his children. Positional. All right, now next to this one, you can write the words at salvation. All right, because that's when positional holiness occurs. At salvation, God sets you apart for himself. Now, that we, we could probably technically put um, uh, before the foundation of the world next to that one, but we're, we're going to make it easy on ourselves and, and put salvation there today. And also, I want you to underline the phrase, God imparts. Because positional holiness is a work of God. Okay, this is holiness is not done by you, it is done by God. Okay, now the second category, this is number four on your papers, is practical holiness. Practical holiness is the outworking and fruit of positional holiness evidenced in the way we think and live. All right, now next to that definition, write your part. This is holiness that you do. This is the holiness that you are to strive for and chase after every day. All right, why are we going over this today? What does any of this have to do with the lesson on the unbelieving spouse? Well, because we need to understand that your husband's salvation your husband's holiness is going to first and foremost be a work of God. It's something God will do. You do not save your husband or your child or your parent or your best friend for that matter. Salvation from the end, from beginning to end is of God. He is the one who draws men, he woos men, he convicts men, he gives understanding. He is the one that saves. I can remember sitting at a restaurant with my newly changed husband and looking at him and saying, where have you been for the past 37 years? And he broke down and began to weep and say, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I told my daughter about it. And I said, you know, sometimes I can get sad when I think about how you kids didn't get to see this in the home, you weren't raised with this. And she was very wise. And she said, but mom, all the grandbabies will only know saved Poppy. And she's right. But here's the thing. Who can explain the timing of God or the way he works? We cannot fathom this. Salvation 
or that very first thing, that positional holiness, the number three on your paper, it is a work of God. God draws men to himself and he does the saving. You cannot save your husband. You cannot twist his arm or sweet talk him or force him. You cannot be good enough yourself to save him. It is God's job to change hearts. Nancy Kennedy puts it this way, plain and simple, your husband's relationship with the Lord isn't dependent on you. Now she's going to explain that. She's going to remind us that God may use you, but in the end, it is the Holy Spirit and his job to convict and change hearts. Jenny Ortland reminds wives this, in heaven, dear sister, God is not going to stand us before him and say, I am so proud of how you changed your husband. Do not take on a responsibility God never intends for us to have. End quote. Sometimes, well-meaning women will tell the wife of an unbeliever, if she only had more faith, or if she only prayed more, or if she only made the gospel more attractive in her home, or if she herself was only a better Christian, then her husband would get saved. Listen to how Nancy Kennedy replies to that. It is not about our Christian example or even the number of years we wait or the volume of prayers we pray. It is not even about your husband or whether or not he sees Christ in you. It's about God's plan and his timing and how no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draw him, end quote. And she's basing that on John 6, 44. Here's our next point. Number one on your papers. In the end, the issue of salvation is strictly between your spouse and God. All right then. If salvation is a work of God and no one comes to Jesus except the Father draw him, then what does it matter? What are we to do. Very simply, we cooperate with God. We cooperate with God. How do we do that? We practice holiness. We practice holiness. We do that. Is it the third thing on your paper? We practice the holiness that we have been set apart for. Or I guess it's the fourth thing on your paper, isn't it? We chase after our own holiness. Now listen, the temptation is going to be to fuss and concern yourselves and, and get yourself all caught up with your husband's holiness. Okay? But no, we're not to do that. We are to practice and strive for our own holiness, which puts God's glory on display. We are to be holy women of God. All right, now you might be thinking to yourself, but Shouldn't I be talking to him about his sin? Shouldn't I be pointing out to him all the things that he's doing wrong and, and the ways that he's offending God? Shouldn't I be warning him? Ladies, your holy life is a warning. Your holy lifestyle is a a warning. Every morning that you get up and you chase after your own holiness, you are relaying to that husband, there is a God in heaven. 
And he is to be feared. He is to be obeyed. One of the best things that you can do for your husband, that you can do for your children, is chase hard after your own holiness. Lee Strobel put it this way. He said, the more my wife pursued a God-honoring way of life, the more her behavior had the effect of unmasking the ugliness, selfishness, and immorality of my own lifestyle. Here's our next point. Number two, our vital role is to love our husband and pursue a God-honoring way of life. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about some of the ways that we can apply this. What is the holy lifestyle going to look like? What can we do to cooperate with God? All right, because God's word tells us. All right, first, I want you to um, keep your finger here and turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 7.12. We're going to talk about what we are not to do. 1 Corinthians 7.12. Keep your finger in 1 Peter because we're coming back. 1 Corinthians 7.12. I want you to watch for the word holy. 1 Corinthians 7.12 says this, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. All right. The believing wife, let's talk about what she's not told to do not the the apostle paul he's the one writing this and he doesn't tell the wife okay listen there's going to be constant conflict in your home now that you're saved and he isn't and not only that you don't want your children to be influenced by that godless fellow so you need to part ways he's going to bring you down and be influences those kids in a bad way so you need to split no in fact he tells them the uh, very opposite. He tells them, because of your salvation, he is made holy. Right now, don't misunderstand. He, is, he isn't talking about his salvation at this point, and we can see that because he talks about him being an unbeliever. But it means that because of you, your home is now set apart. The blessings and graces that you experience as a believer start to spill over on him. The blessings, your family benefits from your salvation. Here's our next point, number three. Because in marriage we are one flesh with our spouse, when one of the partners is an unbeliever, the blessings of God fall on the unbelieving mate as well. Okay, let's turn back now to 1 Peter 3. Go back there because there's some things in there that um, we're going to see that we're not to do either. 1 Peter 3, I want you to notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, okay, wives, you need to preach. You need to nag. You need to bring this up at every meal. He doesn't say you need to strategically place Christian material and Bible verses all throughout the house. He says you, doesn't, you, you shouldn't um, uh, or coach the kids 
to put on their pouty face and say, Dad, will you come to church with us? Okay, he doesn't say to do anything like that. Also, he doesn't tell them, the wife, that she needs to take charge and be the leader of the home because now you're so spiritually enlightened. Nothing like that is suggested. All right, so what is she supposed to do? Okay, I want you to notice the word wives in verse 1. Now, if you've remembered, I have suggested several weeks ago that when you see the word wives and it's in a passage that's giving instruction, I would recommend circling it because it is a gender alert. This is giving us gender-specific instruction. If we are to have gospel-centered lives, you have to know how to be women. If a woman were to come to me and want counseling for marriage. Uh, nowadays, this is one of the first places I'm going to start. I'm going to recommend that she understand what true biblical womanhood is. And then I would recommend she learn to understand why, how, how a man is wired, how God has wired men. And here's why. Here's our next point. Number four, many of our conflicts in marriage are not necessarily a result of our spiritual differences, but our gender distinctions. All right, now let me explain that. Sometimes our conflicts are the result of two genders, two different genders trying to agree on something. Okay, you can have two godly people that don't um, see eye to eye. Every marriage is going to have gender conflicts, even the most spiritual ones. All right, but here's the point that we want to see. Peter, he is telling us we are to be holy he is telling us we are to be women. Holy women. Now, with that in mind, what are some of these gender-specific instructions? Well, verse 1, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, we just had a full lesson on this, so uh, we're not going to go through all of it again. But there were a couple things that um, I want us to see that we didn't mention. Here's our next point. Number five, the gracious submission of a wife to her unbelieving husband is her strongest evangelistic tool. John MacArthur says, if you want to make the maximum impact on the life of an unsaved man, then be a submissive wife. All right. Some of you were here when we went through 1 Peter. And in that course, we learned that 1 Peter, or Peter, he was writing to people that were suffering they were suffering for their faith. They were being mocked. They were being blasphemed. And we have every reason to believe that these husbands were not just unbelieving men, but probably difficult husbands. And notice what P Peter says. He says, be subject to your husbands. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, we've said before that we are never called to submit to sin. We know that. But can I just say that there um, were times in my life where we would have major decisions to make and I would you know, look at my husband and think, how can you not pray together about this? How can you not get on your face and just cry out to God about that? And um, that's, that's, it's nothing like that now. Now I, now I get why it was like that. But if you are living with a disobedient husband, he probably isn't concerning himself with what God thinks or wants. 
And for the wife, that can be terrifying. The wife is left to wonder, where is this man going to drag this family now? Listen, that's the context of this passage. That's the context of this instruction. Peter understands that these women are currently married to men who were hostile to the will of God, or at the very least, indifferent. And what does he tell them? He tells them, I want you to be women. I want you to be holy. I want you to be known for your agreeable and leadable disposition. I want you to support the headship in his home, in your home, and I want you to do it without fear. You do it without fear because your hope is not in your husband. Your hope is in me. Next he says, they may be one without a word. All right, let's talk about that because this is gender-specific instruction. The primary way that you are going to be communicating the gospel to your husband is not going to be verbally. Now, is this saying that you can't ever talk to him about your faith? No, not at all. The assumption is that you already have or that somebody has. He has heard it. He's rejected it. He's disobeyed it. All right, this isn't saying that you can't talk to him about it. It's just saying that your primary way of communicating the gospel is going to be by your behavior, by your conduct, your lifestyle. Let's make that a point. Number six, the primary way a wife communicates the gospel to an unbelieving husband is by her conduct. All right, little side note here. This is gender-specific instruction for within your marriage covenant. If you have children in the home, the instruction is very different. You are told to diligently, diligently teach your children, and you are to talk of it. When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you rise up, and when you lie down. When it came to instructing my children, I was a lecturing drill sergeant with them, but not my husband. I wasn't his mother. You are not your husband's mother. Your ministry to him is going to be different. For wives, Peter focuses on conduct, behavior. He says our focus should be on our inner beauty, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, what do we mean by that? Let's define that. And this is review. We've talked about this. But that word gentle, sometimes it's translated meek. I have this on your papers. In the Greek, it is the word praos. It, it meant mild, gentle, meek, tamed, when used of animals. It means that when you are responding and approaching your husband, you're going to do that with tender and refined disposition. The word quiet, that's referring more to the inward state of your being. In the Greek, it is the word hesukios. It's also on your paper. That means free from agitation of mind or spirit, without turmoil, well-ordered or undisturbed from without and exhibiting a peaceful attitude. Let me put that another way. And this goes for all of us. It means that your husband sees you and he sees someone who is gracious and pleasant. Someone who is at peace 
with God. Your heart is not in turmoil. You are trusting and you are resting in the providence of God. Your heart is not in turmoil like his. You have a supernatural calm and tranquility that he does not have. Does that describe you? Peter also points out to the women. He says they were holy women who hoped in God. One of the ways that you're going to live out your hope in God is going to be to pray for your husbands. Paul Washer had some interesting insights on this. He explains when he has a relationship with an unbeliever, he will share, he will spell out the gospel to them, but he doesn't share it every time. He says he doesn't tell them that they're wrong every time he sees them, otherwise he'd never get to see them again. For wives, this is his advice. Go to your husband in peace and respect and share the scriptures and share your heart. If he responds, wonderful. If he doesn't, you don't keep coming back over and over again to the same thing. He says, you've told him the truth. But he says, when you cannot talk to the man about God, then talk to God about the man. Here's our next point. Number seven. Prayer is the most powerful and effective service we can offer our husbands. All right, remember we said God's the one that does the saving. Holy Spirit's the one that brings understanding and conviction. The spiritual, it's spiritual work. And so prayer's going to be our ministry. God has given us prayer for this very thing. Also, every resource I came across emphasizes the need for a wife to be in an active Bible-believing church. Here's our next point, number eight. The wife must find support from within the body of Christ. And this goes for all believers. You were never intended <clears throat> to be a lone ranger in your Christianity. You're a part of a body, and you need to be connected to a strong Bible-preaching, Bible-believing body. Now, it is strongly recommend if you're the wife of an unbeliever, find a mentor, have a mentor. Now, having said that, those of you that come to church with a husband, or, or uh, you know how stressful Sundays can be, or just really any time that the church meets, imagine what that is like for the wife that is coming alone that leaves the husband home every Sunday morning and she brings the kids to church by herself and she sees all the little families sitting together. She likely left a stressful situation at home and will return to one after. Many will say that Sundays are the loneliest day of the week for them. Their isolation and loneliness is compounded on Sundays. We need to be aware of that and sensitive and ministering to it. Now, let's talk a little bit about the conduct. Peter says our conduct should be pure, pure conduct. Some of your versions may say chaste. And while this is referring to purity in general, it certainly is referring to sexual purity. Now, here's how this might go. Maybe you get yourself dressed up to come to church. 
or maybe you speak admiringly about your pastor or admiringly about your Sunday school teacher or some of the men that you meet and see and know from church. And your unbelieving husband, he might start to think, well, maybe she'd rather have one of those Christian men as a husband. Maybe she'd like to trade me in for one of those other men. Author Lee Strobel, he writes about how his wife came to Christ first in their marriage. And he said this, he would often feel like she was being lured away from him to this whole new sphere of relationships that he didn't fit in, where he didn't fit in. He said he felt like he was losing his wife. He thought he was doomed to lose her love. Another man described how suddenly his wife was in a love relationship with a man he couldn't even see, and he became jealous. Men often see Jesus as a rival, and they feel threatened and insecure. So notice what Peter emphasizes. He says, wives, you make sure you're pure. You make sure that your behavior and your actions say, honey, you alone are the man for me. You alone are the man I want. Make sure that your behavior and your dress and your outward appearance say that. And that's not just for women with unbelieving spouses. Here's our next point, number nine. Peter calls the believing wife to live by the highest moral standards and for her husband to be able to consistently observe her refined purity. Also, very important to be chaste and pure in your thinking. Oftentimes, women married to an unbelieving husband, they come to church, they're surrounded with godly men who are sitting with their wives and they're worshiping and they're taking care of the children and they're just being godly. And that can be very attractive. So that woman may have to take special precautions to guard her heart and be chaste in her thinking. And again, this applies to all of us. You may have a believing husband. Maybe he's been busy and inattentive. And you find your mind wandering. Can I give you some advice? Deal with that radically. Verse 2 says she is to be respectful in her conduct. Now, in your Bibles, next to that, I would pencil in the third commandment. It's a good reminder. The third commandment, this is how I um, remember it and I teach it to kids. I take three fingers and I stick it over my lips like this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's how I remember it. Now, when I was younger, I used to think that that command meant that I just wasn't supposed to say the God's name in a curse or say it casually or use it um, flippantly. And it certainly means those things, but it means more. Um, if you have been working through the New City Catechism, which I hope you have, we had a whole lesson on this. And um, John Lynn had an excellent explanation for this commandment, and I have it on your papers. He put it this way. It means that we are to speak of God, whether through words or lifestyle. We are to fully honor and respect who he is. All right, that's the third uh, commandment in a nutshell. And it is also another way of describing a holy lifestyle. All right, now here's our next point on the paper. The wife is to be living her life in such a way that she is bringing honor and respect to all that God is. 
because she's respecting God, she's going to be respecting her husband. We've talked a lot about this. Um, a gender-specific in instruction for women is to respect their husbands. And we see that all through this passage. That part about Sarah calling Abraham Lord, that's her, just an example of her giving honor and respect to him. Now, in the case of the unbelieving husband, uh, there's a very good chance that he is feeling threatened by his wife's faith, mainly because she's loving someone else, she's trusting someone else, she's depending on someone else. And so respecting him becomes especially essential. Now, the problem is that now that you're a believer, you're probably feeling like the two of you are on two separate planets with a lot of issues. And so you might be thinking, he doesn't do anything remotely respectable. Your values and your loves have so dramatically changed, and so you find respecting him might be difficult. Now, for that, I would remind you of the context. People is Peter is writing to wives with difficult husbands, unbelieving husbands, and yet he tells them, to be respectful, the wives. Okay, so what do you do? Especially if everything he does is, seems distasteful. You respect his manhood. You respect his position as leader of your home. Some women encourage making a list of all the things that you admire and value about your husband. Is he good with the children? Admire him for that. Does he allow you to bring them to church? Does he get up every day and go to work? Does he fix the car? Does he cut the grass? Does he pick up the heavy boxes? Just you find ways to respect and admire that man. Here's our next point, number 11. A wife is to respect her husband and it is not based on feeling or merit, but on relationship. You respect him because he's your husband and your covenant partner. That means that you're going to be want to be very careful about the way that you speak to him and treat him. It also means you're going to be very careful in the way that you are speaking about him. And you want to be sure that you're teaching your children to respect him and treat him respectfully. Lee Strobel warns this. If you lose respect for your husband, you may very well end up losing your husband. Because he will sense your disappointment in him. Your low opinion of him will inevitably leak out in disparaging comments and wound him deeply. He will withdraw emotionally and maybe even physically. We're going to be discussing a lot more of this next week with our um, next lesson. But um, if you will remember, every time we've made a list of ways to respect our husband, there's, there's something that's always on our list. Do you remember? Do you remember? A way to respect him? Have sex. Thank you. I'm glad somebody remembered. Okay, yes, have sex with him. Now listen, unbelieving husbands, they have shared that often they think that after their wives become Christians, those women are going to become prudes and frigid and not interested in having a physical relationship with them anymore. Okay, listen, you're going to have to convince them otherwise. You're going to have to correct their thinking on that one. All right, here's our next point. Number 12. Your sexual relationship with your unbelieving husband can be your bedroom ministry. And we had an entire lesson on this one. 
We talked about how sex is often the only source of closeness for them. Okay? And nothing says, I reject you, like rejecting them sexually. Now, something else, um, other little side note. Uh, one of the complaints that husbands had about their Christian wives was they was being made to felt like a ministry project. And um, they want to be your partner, not your project. So I want to be mindful of using that word, ministry. Um, one last thing I want to point out. Every source that I read made a point to offer encouragement and hope. Despite the fact that you are spiritually mismatched, you can learn to thrive in your marriage. Now, I should point out, they were writing to women that were already married. This was not the topic for a singles crowd, okay? But um, I want to read you what Nancy Kennedy um, wrote, and uh, a quote from her. She wrote the book, When He Doesn't Believe, and here's what she had to say. I've decided that if it takes 80 years, then I want those years to be as enjoyable as possible for the both of us. Despite our spiritual differences, my situation is by God's sovereign design. Reminding myself of that enables me to relax my spiritual chokehold on my husband. End quote. Her book was my favorite. I highly recommend it. Um, you can also hear her on reviveourhearts.com, um, their website. Uh, it's very worthwhile listening to her. Um, I want to close with one last reminder by Lee Strobel. He said this, and this is number 13 on your papers. A spiritual mismatch does not have to be a death sentence for a marriage. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God that changes hearts. You move, you woo, you convict, you give understanding. Father, if there's anyone here that just doesn't know where they stand with you, oh, I pray that you would give them understanding, that you would move in hearts and change hearts. Father, our prayer for this class is that we would be holy, we would be women, holy women that put your glory on display and our trophies for Christ. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.